they become fast friends, and Sugar Ray eventually invites him to Greenwood Lake where he trained and sort of shows Bundini what it means to go through a training camp. And he has a seven-year apprentice with the great Sugar Ray Robinson, who in 1964 hands him over to a young Cassius Clay who's home from the Olympics uh, and, and about ready to uh, challenge Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship. And he tells uh, the young Cassius Clay, uh, I found the only guy who can out-talk you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is author Todd Snyder with a new book on Bundini. And as much, I've read a lot of books on Ali, but I love when the secondary characters get their own treatment. And I don't know that any secondary character with a major life in sports deserves a book quite like Bundini Brown. And Snyder really interesting background from West Virginia, grew up around boxing gyms, was was an amateur boxer, his dad was in the same gym. Uh, really interesting conversation. I never had a chance to talk to Snyder before, but really liked him. And uh, just learning his story of getting to this book, academia for him, um, and, and just Bundini Brown. Uh, fascinating guy, and, and I really wanted to get this in while people are studying. The book is pretty recent, so I hope you enjoy Todd Snyder. How you been? Good. Thank you uh, for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah. So why don't we just start? Like, how did this book project come about for you? Well, you know, it, it was a long and winding journey, I'll say it that way. Uh, back in 2014, uh, my school founded this uh, this festival we call Hip Hop Week. I'm, I'm an English professor at Siena College in Albany, New York. And I teach courses on hip hop history, uh, along with writing courses and speech courses. And uh, due to this program we had on campus called the Damietta Cross Cultural Center, we put together a week-long celebration of hip-hop culture as a diversity initiative uh, to celebrate the culture and all of its elements. And our keynote speaker for the very first festival was Chuck D. from the hip-hop group Public Enemy. And, of course, my students were familiar with Chuck D. because on the first day of my hip-hop class, I played this ESPN documentary called Ali Rap. I'm not sure if you've seen it. But uh, Chuck D is the narrator, and it's full of hip-hop legends who cite Muhammad Ali's lyrics and uh, talk about Ali as sort of the archetype for uh, the first MC, the first hip-hop artist, and how Ali was sort of a pre-hip-hop icon in so many ways that sort of you know his energy led to what what later becomes hip-hop two decades later. So Chuck D was at Siena College, just our keynote lecture, and uh, a couple hours before he went on for the public, he had dinner with me and my hip-hop students. Hmm. And one of my students asked him, you know, have you, uh, you, know, have you thought much about that, that documentary since you made it? You know, would you argue Ali is the first rapper? Another student chimed in and said, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. You know, is that the first rap lyric? Because <laughs> in, in, in one of our articles that we read for class, DMC of Run DMC makes that argument. And he said, you know what, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, yeah, Ali was the first rapper, the first hip-hop artist. And I chimed in and said, well, you know, that line came from Drew Bundini Brown, so that makes him the first hype man. And Chuck mm. D got a real kick out of that. He laughed. And I remember he had to wipe the tears out of the corners of his eyes. And he said to me in a very serious face, you know, someone should write a book on Bundini. And I never forgot about that. I mean, that, that stuck in my brain. Uh, for, you know, the next four or five years, the idea of, you know, why isn't there a Bundini Brown book? You know, I mean, Ali is, you know, this bigger-than-boxing figure, but there really isn't much written about Bundini. There was once a Sports Illustrated article that compared him to Svengali. <laughs> and then, you know, in the great Ali books, there's usually a chapter or a couple pages that kind of detail Bundini's uh, mythology, but ever since meeting Chuck D and having that conversation, it was kind of on the back of my mind of how how interesting would it be to learn about his life story because very little had been written about it. Now, I think the the second part to that answer would be, 
my father was a boxing trainer, and I grew up in gyms my whole life. I grew up in a little town called Cowan, West Virginia, and my dad was a coal miner. He worked in he was a tough working-class job, and in the evenings, he ran a boxing gym. It was an outreach for local kids. And to be honest, I, I kind of view boxing through the lens of a trainer. I grew up watching guys go through training camps. I grew up, you know, uh, watching my father. And when I watched fights, I was always interested in Angelo Dundee and Freddie Roach and, you know, all of these you know, sort of famous boxing trainers. So I was always interested in what happens in between rounds. So I think those two incidents are sort of the reason that I, I decided to write this book. One, you know, Chuck D put the, put the idea in the back of my head. And two, I've always been fascinated by trainers and what trainer is more hip hop than Bundini? I feel like he has a foot in both worlds, you know? Hmm. That's interesting. I I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody who growing up around boxing that the, the main point of view that they were most interested in was the trainers, the secondary characters. That's very interesting. Well, you know, I would watch See, when I was in uh, college, I would come home in the summers and I would work corners with my father and I would, I would work in the summer at his gym. And, you know, I boxed briefly in high school, but I was never a great fighter. I mean, I was I was okay. My dad was a trainer, so I had good fundamentals, but it was never my ambition in life to be a world champion or anything like that. Uh, I was a kid who grew up wanting to be a writer, you know, and hip-hop was my first love. But, uh, yeah, I do kind of see the sport through that way. And I'm very interested in trainers and training camps, and all of my dad's buddies were trainers too, so... I've watched him work his magic, and I've, I've, you know, seen him lead people to the finish line <laughs> and, you know, lead fighters to victories that really, uh, if they had had a different chief second, may not have won the fight. So I've always appreciated what trainers bring. Uh, and Bundini, of course, wasn't a traditional boxing trainer by any stretch of the imagination, but he did bring a little magic. You know, so much of boxing is, is psychological, and I do think he, he made Ali better. A lot of the folks I interviewed for the book – made that argument in no uncertain terms that Ali just trained better and harder when Boudini was barking at him. <laughs> what did your mother do? <laughs> You're going to laugh at this. My mother was a hairdresser, uh, and she owned a little tiny beauty shop in, in our town. And for years, my dad's boxing ring was in the back of the building. <laughs> so in the front of the building was a beauty shop where she would, you know, little old ladies getting perms and with curlers in their hairs and better homes and gardens magazines. And in the back, these tattooed, beer-bellied coal miners learning how to box for my father. Uh, it was a weird sort of gender dynamic in my house, you could say. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> right. What do you when you look at sort of contemporaneous boxing gyms in relation to what you grew up around with your dad, and and maybe seeing meeting other people in boxing and and learning about the gyms that they came from, boxing mm. moving where it is now to only really being able to survive in major cities if it's catering to Wall sure. Street types or, you know, white-collar mm -hmm. boxing, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, what do you think about that, that as cities gentrify, so do the gyms? Yes, um, that's a wonderful question. In fact, that's one, of the, that's one of the most interesting questions I've been asked thus far during my little media tour. Uh, make no mistake about it, my father's gym was a community outreach. If he would have charged $5 a month in gym fees, we would have no fighters. This is one of the poorest parts of Appalachia. I mean, cyclical poverty, and it has been poor since my town was originally a coal camp founded for the mines. So poor since its inception. So all of the kids in the gym were kids from alternative school, kids who didn't had single-parent house homes, kids who had parents who were on drugs and alcohol pretty heavily. Um, it was a way for my dad to steer kids in a better direction. Uh, he paid all of their USA boxing gym fees. He, he, you know, we did fundraisers to buy them trunks and uniforms when they competed. Uh, it was the lowest level of boxing you could probably get at. And um, sort of the pride of his career was he was awarded the Jefferson Award for the state of West Virginia, which is a community service award um, uh, for all of the code drives and all this charity work he did through his boxing club. He, he, he won that award in 2008. Uh, so, you know, our gym was never a for-profit gym that was looking to create world champions. It was never a gym where, you know, we had a couple low-level pros who basically boxed in Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia. But these were poor, working-class Appalachian fighters who, you know, we were kind of trying to keep kids out of trouble, show people how to get a little discipline in their life and to, and to get some self-esteem. Um, so, you know, I always believed in, you know, boxing is, is something that can help people 
in a positive way, despite it being such a brutal sport. Uh, it's a much different, I live in New York now, so it's a much different environment where I live now, where the only gyms here in Albany are these gyms we have to pay these pretty pretty high gym fees. It's mostly, like you said, upper-class folks who are trying to lose some weight or, you know, uh, stay-at-home moms who want to do Tabo and that kind of stuff. It's not a, not the kind of boxing gym uh, that I grew up in, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm curious, so when you left West Virginia, walk me through your okay. path to New York and teaching and academia and that kind of thing. Sure. Are you the first person in your family to go in that direction? Absolutely. All of the men in my family worked in the coal mines. Uh, every single cousin, uh, you know, my uncles, all my, uh, my my dad. He was a fifth fifth or sixth generation coal miner. Um, wow. So they either, either worked in the timber trade or in the coal mines. So I was the very first in my family to even try to go to college. Huh. Um, I grew up loving hip hop. I wanted, you know, when I was when I was in my teenage years, I wanted to be an MC. I wanted to be Nas or Rakim or one of those guys. I mean, it made poetry cool. It made writing cool. But what hip-hop did for me was it led me down the path to wanting to be a writer. It, it, made, it was sort of my literacy sponsor, if you want to use that term. <laughs> uh, so, And I know it's an ironic story, but it was. It made me want to read. Uh, it made me love poetry. And it made me, you know, Tupac would quote Shakespeare in his lyrics, and I thought that was cool. It made Shakespeare cool. Uh, so I knew I was good at writing. So when I went off to college, I thought I'll be a high school English teacher, and then maybe come back and help my dad with the gym. I'm going to be honest with you. I went off to Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia, and fell in love with college and fell in love with uh, academia. Uh, and I decided to stay for a master's degree, and then I decided to stay and get a Ph.D. I went to Ohio University for five years. And at that point, I decided I never wanted to leave college. I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to live my life in, in the marketplace of ideas. <laughs> So uh, I was 29 years old when I when I graduated from Ohio and uh, got the job here in Albany, New York at Siena College. But all through those years, uh, boxing was a part of my life, uh, you know, coming home, helping my dad with the gym, meeting him at fights. Until I moved to New York, I was extremely active uh, with the gym and working corners with my dad. So in some ways, this book has been writing itself my whole life. The first book I ever read cover to cover was the greatest, and it was my dad's edition of that Richard uh, Richard Durham text, Random House, put out back in the 70s. And uh, it was the first book I ever tried to read from cover to cover was Ali's book. And here I am writing Bundini's biography, the first one, which is what a journey, right? It's a crazy journey. What was what was your big connection with Ali? What, what spoke to you the most about reading about oh, I, him and his life? Oh, yeah. Ali was my dad's hero. And you got to remember, I grew up in West Virginia. We saw Ali as a Kentucky boy. He was from Louisville. And then he, that's one of the few places we'd ever been. You know, very few people have written about Ali as an Appalachian man, but he was. Listen to his dialect. Uh, he speaks like we speak. <laughs> and uh, we, we loved Ali. And Tony Hunsacker, Ali's first professional opponent, was a, a police chief in Fayetteville, West Virginia, who we knew the Hunsacker family. And uh, pretty much anyone in West Virginia who was in boxing, knew my dad. And, you know, there's something about, I think, maybe that proximity. My dad fell in love with the idea of boxing because of Ali. So when he was a little kid, you know, Ali was his hero. So my dad was my hero. So vicariously, I grew up believing Ali really was the greatest fighter to ever live and the greatest thing that ever happened in sports in general. So I was an Ali scholar before I probably graduated to eighth grade. I watched all the documentaries and all the old fight tapes. And so, you know, I grew up an Ali fan, even though I was born in 1981. That was the year he retired. Did, did you know? I, I, when I was coming to Ali, I mean, I have brothers, two brothers that are seven and ten years older, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm a couple of years older than you. But I mean, Tyson coming up in 1985, it was a weird, it's a weird period because Tyson was so much. He was so young, he seemed so invincible, and it seemed mm -hmm. almost like we had Michael Jackson in the same position, where it's like <laughs> the biggest selling album of all time, and he's yeah. so young, and like, wow, my dad is talking to me about how good the Beatles were. If they can go from <laughs> I Want to Hold Your Hand to Sgt. Pepper in just just a couple albums or a few albums, just a few years – Imagine what Mike Tyson's going to be able to do. Imagine the albums that Michael Jackson's going to be able to do. And instead, um, 
they both fizzled out. They never really improved once they hit their respective zeniths really early in their adult mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. And my brothers were always very cautiously optimistic about Tyson saying, yeah, he's really impressive. Ali would have killed him. <laughs> well, then, my dad my dad would have said the same thing. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then, and then I would watch and I'd say, well, okay, show me – these are in the days we had to get video cassettes. Show right. me Joe Frazier. I want to see Joe Frazier because – Tyson kicked his son's ass pretty badly, and right. he's bigger, stronger, faster, and seems a lot more technically sound than Joe Frazier, taking nothing away from Joe Frazier. I love Joe Frazier. Mm-hmm. But Tyson seems like a very advanced model, kind of like the Terminator 2 upgrade from, from Schwarzenegger. Um, That's right. <laughs> but, but watching Ali go through like his 20-year career, and of course Tyson has his 20-year career, it was so interesting to see the different permutations of Ali, him kind of starting off almost like Floyd Mayweather, where really unpopular, the braggadocio mm-hmm. just doesn't land with people, mm-hmm. um, obviously all the racism and, and the backdrop that he had with it. But then moving into this figure that I knew because he'd show up at Tyson fights where he is the secular saint, he offends mm-hmm. nobody, he's right. one of the most beloved faces on earth, and right. then I guess over the years of getting close to people that knew Ali, like, uh, you know, Tom Hauser is somebody I regularly go to coffee with pre-COVID, or not coffee, but lunch with, mm-hmm. and gleaning these behind-the-scenes moments with Ali of his kindness or, or Leon Gass behind the scenes of mm-hmm. when we were kings and what motivated his love of Ali you see this figure that is just like, like he's only, he's one of the only major boxing figures that I never had a chance to meet, but almost everybody who did describes him as like the highlight of their life in terms of meeting (laughs) a a cultural figure, but he's so complex. Like he, there's just so many layers to how heroically brave he is. And then you get like the Mark Cram take where it's like, Ali didn't stand up to anybody. He was pushed around by everybody in his life. He didn't really have any original ideas. He was a mouthpiece for the nation of Islam. He goes virtually bankrupt at the end of his, his career, but gets saved by that deal licensing his name. Right. Um, had the same kind of the nation of Islam and the Ku Klux Klan were pretty similar in being pro-segregation. Ali had right. a really bad track record with misogyny. How did you? How did your evolution come about with Ali shaping from you reading about him as that first book to say getting us to where you were at in assessing him in this book that you wrote you know uh, as a kid I watched all the documentaries and studied all that stuff with my father but you know as you grow up you begin to form your own perspective and your own sort of sensibility about what a person's legacy means um I would I would liken Ali in some ways to Tupac Shakur in hip-hop who was that, who was seen as sort of a saintly figure in hip hop, but also had some sort of tragic demons and some tragic flaws too, you know, and also someone who sort of built up his own mythos, was bigger than his own, you know, uh, his own image was uh, transcendent beyond hip hop, and Ali was certainly transcendent beyond uh, boxing. Uh, for me, you know, it, it did change. I watched the documentaries over the year. I saw the, I think it was the HBO Ali Frazier thing where it talked about Ali speaking to the Ku Klux Klan and. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you you start to realize that some of the stuff that was coming out of the nation was um, pretty radical stuff, and that you know he, <laughs> yeah, he was behind, and he was behind it. Uh, and you, you're right, you do change as you go through the years, and you form your own opinion. Um, Ali never stopped being a hero to me. Never stopped being one of the most charismatic, interesting figures ever. But as you get to know the people who knew him well, and one of my key sources was of course Boudini's son, and Gene Kilroy and Kalia and Larry Holmes and George Foreman, these people who could really give me some great stories that hadn't been printed yet. Uh, you do start to see that, you know, he was a human. He was a man. So I, I will say at the end of the research, you don't just see him as sort of this idea. <laughs> you see him as a person who had some of the flaws and problems that you mentioned uh, in your question. Uh, you know, certainly he struggled. He struggled in some ways, that he was a human being like the rest of us. And that his fame was a type of fame that I think I, – I don't think I would want it. I think that was one of the one of the takeaways I had from really getting to know people who were close to him is that 
it's a type of fame that I'm not even envious of, right? Yeah. <laughs> and his son said to me one time, he said, imagine if everybody laughed at your jokes, even if they weren't funny. And everyone told you you were the most handsome man in the world, and you didn't know if they really meant it or if they just wanted to be next to you or if they wanted something from you. And he said, you know, the champ had to deal with that his life. And one of the reasons he kept Bundini around all of those years is that he was a little semblance of reality for Ali. He was a friend who wasn't afraid to stand up to him, wasn't afraid to correct him, wasn't afraid to argue with him about uh, religious principles or issues of race and segregation. Bundini was very vocal about those things too, Ali, and multiple people have told me stories like that. Uh, he wasn't a yes man in the, in the sense that he gets painted sometimes, that whatever Ali told him to do, he just tucked his tail and did it. That's not who Bundini was to him. Uh, they were lifelong friends, but they had their tiffs and disagreements and arguments and you know, as much as they were alike, they were polar opposites, you know. Ali was, you know, a guy who didn't drink. Bundini was was someone who struggled with alcoholism. You know, Bundini married a white Jewish woman at a time where that was extremely taboo for a black man. And Ali, as you mentioned, was the face of the nation of Islam for a period of time. So, you know, yeah, as you go through the research process and you hear the stories, the things that have never been printed, you you, you do start to realize he was a human being and we should treat him as such. Still, probably the most extraordinary athlete to ever to ever live, but a human being nonetheless, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, a, in an interesting kind of tapestry of what's simple about him and what's really right. complex. Well, and Bundini was one of those characters too. See, I'm a writer, and I love characters that are complicated and tragic and flawed and brilliant and beautiful all at the same time. That's who Bundini Brown was. I mean, people loved him just like they loved Ali. When I interviewed all of those folks, I was always waiting. This is going to be the one. This is going to be the interview where someone gives me the dirt on him, where someone really tells me you know, what they didn't like about him. And people just loved him so much, they would tell you those things, but then they would just always defend him and say, look, but, you know, he was the best friend. He was the most loyal person. You know, of course, Bundini had a knack for selling Ali memorabilia. Uh, that's well documented. Bundini loved the nightlife. That's well documented. You know, uh, you know, they would tell you those things, but then they would say, you know, but the champ loved him. The champ didn't care. And, you know, you could just tell he was just as loved by the entourage. He was a key piece of the puzzle, the nutmeg, as he used to say. Well, why don't you walk through people, I mean, for younger people, who are falling in love with boxing right now that mm -hmm. don't know anything about Bundini, how would you, in, let's say, three or four minutes, walk, walk, walk them through his life and how he yeah. collided with Ali? Yeah, you know what? This book is an extraordinary American story. I mean, talk about rags to riches and back to rags again and the, the ups and downs of a glorious and amazing life. This is the story of Drew Bundini Brown, a guy who grew up in Sanford, Florida, at a time where the Ku Klux Klan loomed large in Seminole County. It was a serious presence for black folks in that region. Uh, dirt poor, lived with his grandmother. His father had sent him off to live with uh, his mother. His mother had abandoned him when he was just in the second grade. Uh, and <laughs> at a time when, you know, being a, a poor black boy in Sanford, Florida was not an easy thing to be. Uh, they formed the Naval Air Station Sanford in 1942, and he signs up for the Navy before he's 18 years old. He's a really tall kid, and he had a little mustache, so <laughs> they took him on. But even though he joined the Navy, it, it was at a time where the Navy was extremely racist. You know, he was essentially a steward. He had to shine shoes. He had to peel potatoes and cook and be a servant for the officers. But the Navy takes him around the world, and he becomes this nomadic world traveler. And that's where he gets the nickname Bundini in a port in India. These girls see him in his fancy uniform, and they holler Bundini at him, and uh, – that means lover, roughly translates to the word lover. And uh, they nicknamed him Bundini Brown, so that's what he was for the rest of the tour in the Navy. Well, after the Navy, he joins the Merchant Marines, and after the Merchant Marines, he ends up in Harlem. And I asked uh, some of his relatives, why did he go to Harlem? And they said, well, he heard there weren't, uh, there weren't any celery crops there. Because <laughs> he, he, he wasn't uh, wanting to go back to Sanford, Florida, where all that hard work and the citrus groves and then the celery crops was waiting on him. So he goes to Harlem at a time where the Harlem Renaissance is in full swing. He hangs out at all these jazz joints, befriends all, all these famous jazz musicians like Miles Davis, and eventually uh, gets an apartment above Sugar Ray Robinson's Golden Gloves Barbershop. 
where he meets a, a former welterweight champion named Johnny Honeyboy Bratton. And Bratton becomes his gateway to Sugar Ray Robinson, who is intrigued by Bundini right from the start. From there, uh, he starts out doing very menial work for the great Sugar Ray Robinson. He babysits his kids. He's an errand boy, essentially doing you know odd jobs for him. Uh, they become fast friends, and Sugar Ray eventually invites him to Greenwood Lake where he trained and sort of shows Bundini what it means to go to a training camp. And he has a seven-year apprentice with the great Sugar Ray Robinson, who in 1964 hands him over to a young Cassius Clay who's home from the Olympics uh, and, and about ready to uh, challenge Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship. And he tells uh, the young Cassius Clay, uh, I found the only guy who can outtalk you. And, then, of course, he's referring to Bundini Brown. So they meet. Uh, they hit it off. Ali invites him to uh, to Florida to train for him at the Fifth Street Gym. And Bundini coins the famous phrase, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And he becomes Ali's poet laureate in his corner. <laughs> Ali knocks out Liston, and the rest is history. He he goes on the, probably the most fantastic ride ever for 20-some years. He's at all, all of Ali's significant fights. So my book profiles that journey of the poor boy from Stanford, Florida, who ends up being in the most famous corner in boxing history. Mm. What uh, what surprised you most in this, good and bad, about him, about Ali, about anybody notable for you mm -hmm. in the process of researching this book? Well, you know, I knew Bundini was funny. I knew he had a sense of uh, you know sense of humor. I knew that he was quick with his words, and he was a street poet. He had a little bit of that Harlem jazz vibe to him. I knew all that stuff. Um, what I didn't quite understand going into the research was how serious of a man he was. He today you would call him like a sports psychologist. Uh, hype man probably doesn't even do the right uh, do the do it justice. He was there to sort of get Ali ready, you know, up in the morning to run, get him ready in the gym, to keep him focused, to make training fun and motivational. He was sort of like Ali's personal motivational coach, <laughs> and. Uh, I didn't understand how serious of a man he was and how deep his philosophies were and all the things he had learned from Sugar Ray Robinson during their decade-long friendship, uh, he passed on to Ali. And here's how I describe it to folks who don't uh, understand how this works. Imagine if you wanted to be a film director and Steven Spielberg was your idol and he said, look, I've got this guy who works with me on my films and I've taught him everything I know and he really helps me when I'm, when I'm working on my movies. I want, I want him to come work for you. You would take him on in a second. You know, Ali looked up to Sugar Ray quite a bit, and he wanted a little bit of that magic Bundini gave Sugar Ray. And, uh, of course, with Ali, he found his most famous pupil, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it, was, it was a friendship that, that went over 20-some years, you know, 40-some fights. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think a lot of people look at Ali as something that's just like a primary color, but early mm -hmm. Ali coming to New York – was completely sycophantic to Sugar Ray Robinson, dressed like him, imitated oh, my him. I did, that's, one, that's one thing I didn't know going into the research. I, I had read that before, but I didn't know the extent of how much he looked up to Sugar Ray. So the fact that he took him on and replaced Rockman with Bundini in his corner really isn't that surprising when you know how deeply uh, motivated Ali was to be like better than Sugar Ray or the next Sugar Ray. Right, right. Well, and what do you think it was like for Bundini? I mean, the ride of Ali, it's interesting the way he's had treatments of him because I think, mm -hmm. you know, we're in a country that just loves nostalgia and we love boxing <laughs> on the way up. But right. these guys are awfully disposable. You know, once they lose, especially if they lose badly or there's something tragic. I mean, I was thinking this morning I was doing an interview with a film critic about the Emil Griffith documentary. And right. one interesting feature about that is that boxing killed both of these people. I mean, yeah. dementia yeah. pugilistica is what killed Emil Griffith right. and being beaten into submission and, and going into a coma for 10 days killed Benny Perrette. But Ali has, as you say, one of the most inspiring, iconic images and stories in the history of sports. I mean, even beyond sports right. culture, even but his descent is often omitted in documentaries. I mean, when we were kings, there's a minute, two minutes talking about the effect that boxing right. had on him. But right. uh, all, the, all the rest of it, I mean, almost immediately after that, you get a highlight reel of him at the absolute peak of his youth. 
<laughs> what was it like for Bundini being on this ride yeah. of, of the ups and downs of Ali's career? Because Ali's career seems like it's 10 career, like 10 Hall of Fame worth careers. Yeah, sure. I mean, you think about it, it was an epic poem he lived. It was like Beowulf or something. He fought dragons <laughs> and, 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 you know, came back from the dead and came back from exile. I mean, he, it, it's, it's larger than life stuff that was wrapped into race and politics and war and religion. I mean, Ali's career was bigger than boxing because it was so, his career was so wrapped up into the, the story of the time period in which he was born. Wow. Um, to answer your second part of your question, though, Bundini, uh, his ride was interesting to follow, too. I mean, you think he grows up in Sanford, where, of course, Jackie Robinson was ran out of town when he played minor league ball there. Sanford is where, you know, a lot of your contemporary listeners will remember that's where Trayvon Martin was murdered. Uh, So his time in Florida marks a certain time period. And then Bundini finds his way to Harlem, and he's there in the jazz scene, the Cotton Club. He's there with all the things that are happening, the intellectual movement. He was friends with James Baldwin, for goodness sakes. He was there in Harlem around the movers and shakers and thinkers of a society that was sort of black-owned. These were black proprietors. It was their own little section of New York City, and he was part of that too. (laughs) Mm. And then he gets to go with Ali, and he's a part of the, you know, he was there the day Ali turned himself in for, you know, refusing to be inducted into the United States Army. Bundini was there, part of that exile. He was with Ali quite a bit during that time period. And he was there for the resurrection. He was there for the time that Ali came back and was sort of, you know, defeated by Frazier and had to pick himself up from another loss to Ken Norton in which he suffered a broke jaw. So the book does sort of profile the ups and downs of Ali and how they sort of were the ups and downs of Bundini as well. You're right, though. We do ignore what boxing did to the champ. And I wrote in my book. Uh, the the sad part is Ali knew what it took to be great, and he was willing to do it. He was willing to take the punishment to do it. Most of us don't want to be punched in the face. That's why we admire these guys so much, because they're so brave. Ali knew exactly what he had to do, especially in that second half of his career. And the best way I can sum it up is uh, Drew Brown III, Bundini's son, came home one day, and he said, Dad, I want you to teach me how to box. And he said he tried to do his little Ali shuffle, and he was serious. He had made his mind up. He wanted to be a fighter. And his uh, father told him no. He said, you're going to be the educated Drew, and you're going to do something I can't do. And he said, you're not going to carry a spit bucket around, and you're not going to take punches. So Bundini knew what these guys were going through. And his famous phrase was, you know, everyone sees, but only a few know. <laughs> and, what, and what that means is that everyone sees the glory and the belts and the, you know, the, the, the moment of triumph. But very few people know what it takes to get in the ring and to, what you have to go through to even make it to the ring. And then very few know what you have to endure to win. And Bundini was there. He had learned that from Sugar Ray, that boxing was a savage sport. And, you know, he watched Ali deteriorate. And in some ways, as Ali began to deteriorate, so did Bundini. Right. Do you think, I mean, I agree with you that there's huge courage in what Ali's doing. But one of the things that I think added a more robust understanding of Ali and, and sort of his contradictions and complexity is, he was kind of afraid of a lot of things, like a lot of little kid things. I don't think he had to grow up very much in in many fascinating ways, which is mm-hmm. what allowed him to have, like, persevere this child-like quality. People I know that interacted with him just said all he right. wanted to do is make you smile, yeah. make you laugh, and that kind of thing. But there's another side to him that I remember Harry Benson, Life Magazine's photographer forever, said um, that Ali had the eyes of a snake when you were watching him fight. He said, like, being up close with him, that was a murderous intent that was there. That was, that he only said, the only other time he saw it was like Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer had that quality in his eyes (laughs) that was corrosive to look at. It was really scary to see what was behind it. And, I agree with you entirely that all of these boxers are incredibly brave or crazy to do what they do. But <laughs> there's another element of it that I think we're seeing. I think we're seeing it right now with, with the discussion of the Roy Jones, Mike Tyson fight is that right. these guys are addicted to something that they can't let go of. And yeah. very few of them are able to leave the casino yeah. when they've gotten ahead. And they're, it they're it right. makes me it makes me think increasingly like when I've seen people 
that are really invested in gambling, that they're not sticking around until they win. They're there until they lose. They're right. masochists by nature. And yeah. I felt as though Ali, even though throughout his career, he's talking about stepping away. He's, you know, he was going to retire really early in his career. Right. Roy Jones, Roy Jones yeah. at the Olympics was going to retire after the travesty in, in 1988 in Seoul, Korea. Yeah. Uh, Tyson said the same thing. And yet they just can't let go of it until the choice is kind of made for them by a yeah. damage or, or just a savage beating or yeah. just the economics of the sport. Um, I, I wonder when you look at Ali's career and you look at Bundy, Bundini being beside him, as it got darker and darker and darker and the odds got taller and taller and Ali finally, you know, Larry Holmes or, or Trevor Burbick, what was it like to revisit those last chapters of Ali where, you know, yeah. it, it's as if he's trying to rehash what happened in Zaire and increasingly it's just like, wow, this, this dreamer is little, it's going too far here and it's mm -hmm. suggesting something that's not about courage or audacity right. and that sort of thing. <laughs> that's a great question. Let me tell you, um, one of the things I did not anticipate was how hurt some people were over that Larry Holmes fight and that Trevor Burbick fight. Uh, of course, Bundini is begging, one more round, one more round, you know, and Angelo Dundee finally stops the fight uh, in the Larry Holmes fight, probably. There are a lot of people who saw that and are mad at Bundini and blame Bundini <laughs> for Ali being in the ring as if Bundini could tell Muhammad Ali what to do. Uh, listen, uh, Drew Brown III said it the best, uh, and, and we talked about these two fights, and we talked about the fact that from the outside, in retrospect, they look bizarre. Well, you know, Ali's clearly physically uh, unwell, you know, in both fights, particularly the Burbick fight, and was already starting to show signs of Parkinson's, and the rumors were already swirling. Uh, and I said to uh, Drew, I said, did your dad really believe that, you know, that, that Ali would beat Larry Holmes? Did your dad really believe that? And he said to me, we grew up <laughs> watching Larry Holmes be a sparring partner, and we had watched Ali handle him in the gym so many times. We just couldn't unthink of Larry Holmes as, you know, the sparring partner, that Ali would somehow figure him out or he would be able to be crafty and kill the clock and steal the rounds. And it, we believed, yeah, we believed. We thought Ali could do it. He convinced us he could do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his dad went into that training camp believing that Ali would find a way. Um, pretty, pretty early on you could tell that wasn't going to happen. Now I said, what about the Burbick fight? You know, did, did you think, you know, Burbick was a lesser opponent? Did you think? And he said, no, Daddy told me, don't watch this one. Ollie's going to get hurt. It's going to be bad. And, and he said, my dad was there because if you knew you were going to get in a fight and you knew you were probably going to lose, would you want your best friend there with you? Well, yeah, you would. You would want the guy who was always there with you. And it wasn't that Bundini was, you know, you know, responsible for Ali taking those fights. The people that suggest that kind of thing are kind of odd to me. Ali, it wasn't even the money, probably. I mean, he had some financial problems, but there's no doubt about it. You know, Drew said to me, Ali was addicted to the limelight. He loved being the greatest. He loved people. He loved to make you laugh and make you smile. But, you know, it wasn't just money. It's a, it's a type of addiction, you know, because can you imagine being called great? You, you know, that would be wonderful, but imagine everyone agreeing pretty much – uh, in lockstep that you're not the greatest. I mean, not, you're not great. You're the greatest ever. <laughs> yeah. You're Picasso. You're Leonardo da Vinci. You're you're a you're a savant. And I, I think when that's over, that's a hard thing to just go back and live a normal life. And, and I don't think most of us could ever understand that. There there was something else there uh, beyond just wanting to capture the crown one more time or needing a paycheck. There was something else there that's extremely addictive. Um, and you see it in athletes in all kinds of sports do this type of thing, but particularly it's the story of boxers, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it now. Do you, when you've been around boxing your whole life, do you? Is your takeaway getting up close to these people or, or conversing with them, like the research you did in this book with some icons like Foreman and, and Holmes? Do you think what drives these people is the virtue of their character, or is it the demons inside of them? <laughs> Oh my gosh, I think it's both. That's a, it's, it's such a good question, but I think it's both because, you know, 
you look at what it, what it takes to get in the ring and, and face someone and, and be naked in a sense and, and square off. I mean, it's, it's something, like I said earlier, most of us avoid, and it's humiliating. When I boxed, I was never afraid of getting hurt, my nose busted or anything. I, was in, I, was in, I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my friends or people who watched. That was the fear. So, you know, these guys climb into the ring and, and do this at the highest level when your life is literally on the line. You could be killed in the ring. I mean, these guys, especially at the heavyweight division, I mean, George Foreman, you couldn't be more damaging than a George Foreman hooked to the ribs. Uh, I admire it, but I do think they're they're driven by their demons. They're driven by their backgrounds and their, and their circumstances. Even myself, uh, going from being a little trailer park kid in West Virginia to a professor in New York, I understand that fear of not wanting to go back, that fear of not wanting to lose everything you've gained. Uh, I understand that. I think that's something a lot of boxers, they experience that feeling. Do you think that there's also an addiction to gambling with that risk of, I mean, exactly what you're saying. I mean, any other athlete, you lose a game, you know, sudden death in football is not sudden death, but in boxing, that feeling of being one punch away from losing everything. I mean, one of the real shifts for me about covering boxers that's made – I think heightened and sharpened my sense of ambivalence about the sport. And I'm still just as drawn to it, but I'm also pretty repulsed by it at the same time is to interview the families, to have time with the families of these guys. Uh, I remember asking Roy Jones Jr.'s wife at her, at their house in Pensacola, um, all the highs that you've had with this guy that you adore and the kids that they had are so nice uh, are they worth the lows? Are they worth going to Russia and watching Lebedev separating right. your husband from his consciousness and everybody's cheering and laughing and thrilled? Yeah. And she just looked at me like I was crazy to ask the question. She's like, not even close. <laughs> yeah, look, listen, uh, my dad would have kids in the gym and I would watch these kids uh, turn their life around and do really well and, and clean up their act, so to speak, and you were so proud of the trajectory they would be on, and then one would get knocked out. And that hurts because you care about the person so much. And, you know, my father did have a fighter in his gym once have a brain bleed and had to have emergency surgery. And that's a scary, scary thing. And, you know, to be honest, uh, he used to tell the kids in the gym, a bad day in baseball means you didn't hit the ball. A bad day in boxing could be your life. And, you know, my dad always believed boxing was for the lowest rungs of society. It was for the people who had no other chance but to fight, you know, fight their way out of their circumstances. And uh, you're right. There's a there's a gamble there. You think of a, a guy like Evander Holyfield who repeatedly defied the odds. You know, he was always, you know, had some big, big upsets in his career. I mean, Ali was the same way. For as great as he was, and we all said he was the greatest thing ever, he was an underdog against Liston. He was an underdog against Foreman. He he was an underdog a few times as well. Um, most of the I time think, in his big fights. I mean, sure, not most sure. time, but but almost fifty yeah. fifty compared to say Tyson, almost right. never an underdog. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. And I and, and you know, uh, I think one of the things that is a part of that addiction or that dark side you're talking to, uh, you're, you're talking about, is that sort of you beat the odds. That idea that you know everyone said you couldn't do it and you can do it and you did do it. Uh, Bundini was the guy who was barking in Ali's ear, you know, telling him that that was going to happen. You know, Bundini understood his imagination. He understood the way he thought about things. You know, when, when Ken Norton broke Ali's jaw, Bundini went to the hospital the next day and said, you realize how great this is going to make you? You know, now no one's going to think you can win the rematch. You're going to do it again. You're going to shock the world again because of this. And he called God Shorty. He said, you know, Shorty, this is Shorty working. Did this bad thing happen because it's only going to make you greater. He was like this ultimate optimist. And I think fighters get that sort of mechanism in their head that, you know, they they defied the odds just to make it, you know, out of those circumstances. You look at what Mike Tyson came out of in Brownsville. It's not an easy place to come out of. You know, I recently interviewed Zab Judah, and he was talking about the realities of growing up in that that area. I mean, if you make it out and become any kind of success story, you start to believe in yourself more than you believe in what the rest of the world tells you true and false. So, you can't really knock guys like Roy Jones or, or Muhammad Ali for, you know, not listening to the naysayers because they defy the naysayers so many times. Yeah, I mean, another feature, though, 
I think is both both Ali and Jones huge huge amount of faith goes into their narrative goes into their psychology and I remember like first having some time with Jones and asking him about that that he's still going almost pushing 50 and he just said you know every time I get a CAT scan to check my brain do you think God would let me do this do you think he would allow me to have clear tests when my brain gets checked if he didn't want me to do this, if I wasn't serving him in some way by doing this? Yeah. And so I said, okay. Um, and, you know, and I was just thinking just on the most basic level of response to that, and the first thing that popped into my head was, has God ever said no to anything that you wanted to do? Ever. <laughs> and yeah. he thought about it, and with no irony, just said, huh, no, no, I don't think he has. And then just moved on (laughs) to the next subject. And I I wondered with Ali, I I know a funny anecdote that Hauser told me about him was, yeah, he had a lot of hypocrisy (laughs) about his obedience to to his faith in terms of the womanizing and and various other areas. But he really did become a lot more dedicated and disciplined and Hauser's way of vetting him when they were working together on, on Muhammad Ali, his life and times was mm-hmm. to say, do you swear to Allah? Like this item is true. <laughs> and every, yeah. he said he never caught him once. Every time that that was put to him, Ali answer, answered honestly, and, and he never caught him in a lie. And, I thought that's interesting that Ali, there was a real evolution post-boxing where he just oh, seemed no to. Oh, about it. Yeah. And, and I wonder for Bundini, like, I guess the last thing we could touch on is just his kind of strange death. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And a lot of stuff has been mis, uh, misreported on his death. And this was a hard thing to talk about with the Brown family. I'll tell you, you know, we – we saved it uh, for a little further down the path because uh, Drew doesn't talk about death, and he doesn't like to talk about sad things. He likes to talk about good things, and I understand that that impulse. Um, yeah, his death was very strange. I mean, at the time it happened, is 1987. Bundini was living in this little apartment in Los Angeles. Ali was living in Los Angeles at the time as well. He was married to Veronica Porsche, and. Um, you know, Bundini essentially was there hanging out with Ali, who was working out in the local gym to stave off the effects of Parkinson's disease. So they would pick him up a couple of days of the week, and Ali would go to the gym and kind of do his little workout. And Bundini was there, <laughs> right there with him, like he'd always been back in Deer Lake or Fifth Street Gym in Miami. And Bundini, uh, Bundini was having some problem with alcoholism. When Ali's career stopped, the drinking really took a hold in, in, in a really bad way. Uh, he had battled he had battled that addiction his whole life, but um, when Ali was training, the folks told me he was better. He was sober. He would show up ready to work. He was never hung over or messed up at the gym. He was always on point, ready to work. But in between fights, he would fall off the wagon. Uh, he would have he would have trouble. And at the end, there were no fights, and you know the alcoholism was really getting the best of him, and he he was struggling bad. Um, one night he had been out drinking late and he tripped down a flight of stairs and he broke his neck and he was, he was paralyzed and he lived, he lived for a couple of weeks, but, uh, he, you know, got pneumonia in his lungs and he eventually passed away. It was sad because Boudini really never had the opportunity to have a life after boxing. If you remember, he was in those Shaft movies. He was actually in six feature films, so he would, sort of making a name for himself in Hollywood and it actually did some real acting in some of those movies. You know, maybe he could have had a career in the films. He was out in L.A. Um, he could have, right? I mean, he was great. I mean, just physically and his oh, speech goodness. and energy, amazing. His, his son told me a beautiful story. You know, his dad couldn't read or write well. So when they gave him the script to Shaft, him and his son memorized it in the kitchen. And still to this day, his son knows every line in both Shaft movies. He can do his dad's <laughs> lines. And, uh, and you know, his dad did have a, a really unique talent. He was in The Color of Purple, you know, the Steven Spielberg uh, movie that came out right before his death. I mean, he was he was someone who was starting to sort of maybe find a different path, life after boxing. You know, he trained James Quick Tillis for a couple fights, but that, that didn't really carry on. Um, what his son said to me, and I'll never forget, is isn't it a shame 
that he couldn't have followed Ferdy Pacheco's path and become a commentator or some kind of guest analyst. I mean, he said, you would have enjoyed watching my dad watch the fights more than watching the fights themselves. And I do believe that that's probably right. Yeah. You know, During a boring fight, Bundini would have kept you in stitches. Uh, it's a shame that it ended the way he did. He was the first member of Ali's entourage to pass away. And uh, it was it was a, a loss that was deeply felt by Muhammad. What uh, what's next for you after this book? You want to write another one? Where where do you go from here? Well, I'm about uh, ten months into my next book. Uh, it's titled Beatboxing: How Hip Hop Changed the Fight Game. And Bundini was in some ways a springboard to me having the idea of writing about the two loves of my life: boxing and hip hop. Uh, so I've been interviewing for the last last year. I've been interviewing hip hop icons about boxing, and I've been interviewing former world champions about hip hop, and finding all kinds of interesting things uh, that I didn't even know were there. So we're having a lot of fun. We're looking at the hip hop ring walk. We're looking at, you know, boxers who grew up, uh, you know, with hip hop artists in their neighborhood. Talking about hip hop artists who grew up as boxers, of course, 50 Cent fought in the Golden Gloves. Willie D from the Ghetto Boys was a Golden Glove champion from Texas. Uh, so, you know, finding really interesting stuff and telling the the story of hip hop and boxing, two worlds that really uh, are sort of intertangled in a lot of ways. Interesting. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed your book, and it's fun to meet you over the phone and, and have a chance oh, to talk you. about it. So. When this next well, one comes out, I'd love to talk to you again about... Yeah, let's do it again. And I did enjoy this very much, and I appreciate your readership. You know, I haven't been doing this long enough to not really appreciate when folks read the book and enjoy it, so thank you. No, my pleasure. Thanks, thanks again. I appreciate your time. All right, thank you. Have a good night. You too, man. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.